You're listening to a podcast of local news from the County of Suffolk in the United Kingdom. This is brought to you by the St. Edmundsbury News Talk Association, a UK registered charity. Hello and welcome to the 1939th edition of St Edmundsbury News Talk for the 27th of July 2023. The editor of this edition is Paul Langridge. The producer is Harvey Johnson. Your readers are Harvey Johnson and Chris Payne. We should also mention our processing team who work hard behind the scenes to copy and dispatch this memory stick to you. We commence with the headlines. Why were my drugs taken and given to another inpatient? This junction is lethal. Should speed limits on quiet roads be reduced for safety? No hosepipe bans ahead as rain keeps gardens green. A hospital inpatient who was asked by a nurse to give up his own medication for another patient has called for action to prevent it happening again. Kevin Seggy, aged 61, of Lawshall, is asking questions over his experience after being admitted to the Bury St Edmunds Hospital in April. Mr Seggy was taken to the emergency department on April 24th, suffering stomach and back pain, later diagnosed as kidney stones. That evening he was admitted to Ward F6, where a nurse asked him for his own amtripoline medication, which he takes for trapped nerves, and had with him on admission to give another patient on the ward. Mr Seggy said at about 10pm a nurse came and asked me if I could have some of my medication. I'd taken it in with me and I gave it to her. Half an hour later she asked for more and I gave it. The next morning I thought that was a bit weird. Mr Seggy made a formal complaint and asked West Suffolk Council NHS Foundation Trust to investigate. Nobody I've spoken to about it has heard anything like it before, said Mr Seggy. Why were my drugs taken and given to another inpatient? In response to Mr Seggy's complaint dated June the 23rd, Trust Chief Executive Dr Ewan Cameron apologised for the incident and confirmed it was not common practice for staff to use other patients' medication for patients on the ward. The response added the ward sister had been unable to see documentation about the medication request or confirm who was responsible. Last week, after asking the Trust to investigate further, Mr Seggy received an email saying an internal hospital incident had now been raised and there was a possibility such incidents could be taking place across the Trust. Mr Seggy felt more could be done, adding, it could have resulted in a very dangerous situation for whoever my tablets were given to. This week, Dr Cameron said he was very sorry Mr Seggy had not experienced the quality of care the Trust aimed for. Incidents such as this are rare. However, this should not have happened, and I would like to thank Mr Seggy for giving us the opportunity to address this, said Dr Cameron. We are reviewing our procedures around the administration of medicines and the out-of-hours provision of medicines and are putting in place processes across our organisation to mitigate events such as this happening again. The Trust added it was not policy to administer drugs prescribed to another patient. A shocked pensioner has joined a call for urgent action after he was involved in a crash at a notorious accident hotspot. Jim Langlois, 72, was driving along Mount Road at Fishwick Corner between Ruffham and Thurston when he was involved in a collision which spun his car 180 degrees before it collided with a post. The retired civil servant had been returning to his Tostock home with his wife Pip, 70, when the accident happened shortly after 2.30pm on Monday. It was the third accident within the space of a week at the crossroads, according to campaigners, who have described the junction as lethal. Mr Langlois said, I've always been wary at this junction because I've seen an increasing number of reports about accidents. I was travelling under 30 miles an hour against the 40 mile an hour limit, being cautious, and yet still I was involved in an accident. It left me badly shaken, 
and my wife with serious bruising from the seatbelt. Something really needs to be done. This junction is extremely dangerous, and it could have been a lot worse. Fortunately, nothing was coming the other way when the car spun round. Otherwise, we could have been killed. Mr Langlois contacted other people he had spotted talking about the junction on social media. Sue Button, 50, who lives in Thurston, has recently been demanding action by Suffolk County Council to solve the issue. I've had at least five near misses in the last two years, and it is the same for many people I know. This junction has always been a problem, but has got a lot worse over the last five years because of the number of houses being built and the volume of traffic that creates. It has been particularly bad recently because cars are using the route as a cut-through to avoid the construction works on the A14. Local people know the road and slow down as they approach, but others don't, and it's lethal. There is at least one accident a week. Satnavs also send cars straight over the junction, not highlighting it as a crossroads, which has also added to the problem. Someone will be killed there if nothing gets done. Nurse Emma Potter, 40, from Thurston, is also one of the campaigners calling for immediate action, including stop or accident hotspot signs, traffic calming or traffic lights. My husband was involved in accident there towards the end of last year, leaving his van badly smashed up after it rolled over, she said. Luckily, he was able to walk away with cuts and scrapes, but it could have been a lot worse. I use the junction daily to get to work, and it's scary. I've had four near misses in the last six months, and I worry daily about my daughter, who is a new driver. Fishwick Corner has been the subject of a planning application from Blower Homes, originally lodged in 2019. The company plans to build 210 homes off nearby Baton Road. The application has been approved by Mid-Suffolk District Council on condition the development includes road safety works at Fishwick Corner. Fishwick Corner is overseen by West Suffolk Council, which has approved the road plans, which includes a staggered junction. The scheme was delayed, however, after Thurston Parish Council called for judicial review, concerned about the number of housing developments in the village. This was later overturned in the Court of Appeal. Vicky Wapples, clerk to Thurston Parish Council, said, Both applications are now approved, and people need to stop talking and get on with it, as very little has been accomplished in terms of road safety. A spokesperson from Blower Homes said, the outline planning permission for the site was subject to a legal challenge. Due to the significant delays this caused, the final detail reserved matters planning application was only determined in June 2023. We are now undertaking the necessary approvals and legal agreements required for the Fishwick Corner Junction improvements with an anticipated commencement of these works around late spring 2024. Spokesperson for Suffolk County Council said, We have been working closely with Blower Homes on the delivery of the junction improvements and to investigate what additional measures can be put in place to improve safety. Road markings, signs and bollards are in good condition, however. To help improve visibility at the junction, we are investigating this with the landowners. Conservative members of Suffolk County Council were accused of stifling a debate on road safety by putting the brakes on efforts to lower speed limits. The opposition Green Liberal Democrat, an independent group, tried to get councillors to back a proposed speed reduction on country lanes. At present, where there isn't a formal speed limit, mainly in towns and villages, cars can be driven at up to 60 miles per hour. The opposition have proposed that local communities could ask the council to impose lower speed limits in their parishes if they did not believe roads are safe. However, after Green Councillor Robert Lindsay proposed the motion, the Conservative group proposed that it should be that it should proceed directly to a vote, ending the debate before it had started. Mr Lindsay said, we want to empower communities to use local knowledge to get the right speed limit for all our roads. I find it shameful that Suffolk's Conservative administration is prepared to borrow £10 million to spend on potholes, 
but is refusing to spend a single penny on reviewing our speed limit policy on our roads. It's doubly disappointing that the Conservatives used a procedural device to prevent debate about this vital issue. A spokesman for Suffolk County Council said the national 60 mile per hour speed limit for single carriageway roads is not a target speed and it is the responsibility of the driver to drive appropriate to the conditions considering weather and other road users such as walkers, cyclists and equestrians. The national speed limit covers such a wide range of roads and local circumstances. It puts the onus on the driver to make a judgment on the appropriate speed for a given situation. However, we recognise that in some circumstances, lower speed limits are appropriate and will be supported when backed up by suitable evidence. What a difference a year makes. This time last year, we're in the middle of the country's most searing heat wave. Temperatures in the UK hit 40 degrees Celsius for the first time ever and East Anglia is one of the hottest parts of the country. This came in the middle of a long, dry spell, and there were real fears that homes and businesses might run out of water. But this year, the picture is very different. Even though parts of Europe are suffering even higher temperatures than we had then, while June may have been relatively hot and dry, most of the spring saw a lot of rain, and this month is on course to be one of the wettest Julys on record. All this has given a big boost to Anglian Water's stocks. A spokeswoman for the company said, Overall, our reservoirs are around 91% full, compared to around 84% this time last year, and groundwater stores have recovered well following the rainfall we have had this year. We are likely to start seeing our reservoir levels decrease now, heading into August, as we work hard to reduce the impact of abstraction on our rivers to help support flows and protect the environment. We're still not currently forecasting, forecasting any temporary restrictions in water use this year in our region. However, there are still several weeks of summer ahead, and while there is no sign of a heat wave or drought on the horizon, Anglia Water is still keen that customers should be careful with their use of water. It is continuing to monitor resources and rivers very carefully to ensure it is doing all it can to protect the environment while keeping up with customer demand. The spokeswoman added, Looking ahead, we do need continued helpful rainfall this autumn and winter to ensure we have enough for next spring and summer, and we continue planning ahead at pace for potential future droughts with continued significant investment in our region. A war memorial in Bury St Edmunds, which has been left in a sorry state, is to be repaired. The South African War Memorial on Cornhill is to undergo cleaning and repair works in a project managed by Bury St Edmunds Town Trust. At a meeting last month, the Town Council approved funding of £12,500, which will go towards the project, expected to cost about £25,000. The Trust is also looking to secure funding from elsewhere. Jonathan Lloyd, chairman of the Town Trust, said it may not be a building, but it's part of the heritage of the town. It's a statue which needs regular upkeep, and it hasn't been done for a number of years. The memorial, constructed in 1904, pays tribute to the 193 men of the Suffolk Regiment who died during the Boer War. Some of the works, which will take about a week, including steam cleaning the entire bronze to remove surface dirt and general build-up of pollutants, fill any fissures and remove some of the green staining as far as possible. The Royal British Legion, Bury St Edmunds branch, holds an annual remembrance service at the memorial. Chairman, not Chairman Nigel Wollstoneholm said, I think if it was maintained and cleaned every year, it would be a lot better but it's been allowed to get into a sorry state over a few years. We honestly believe that we should remember all of the sacrifices of those who put themselves between us here and danger. Hundreds of pints of beer could be poured away if a Bury St Edmunds beer festival is forced to abandon takeaway sales to comply with new legislation. However, its organiser is hopeful he can avoid wasting ale despite confusion about new alcohol duty rates coming in next month.
From August the 1st, a new lower draft duty rate will apply to many draft beer and cider containers. However, the new legislation bans sales from draft duty-paid containers for consumption off the premises. According to the Campaign for Real Ale, Camera, this includes beer festivals. It is advising festivals to stop making takeaway draft sales to ensure compliance with the new legislation. Martin Bate, who organises the annual East Anglian Beer and Cider Festival, said there was widespread confusion over the new legislation, with brewers and publicans struggling to navigate the changes. We have a lot of beer left over at the end of the festival, and we try to sell it takeaway or give it to our staff and volunteers, said Martin. Now, we might not be able to do that. If forced to abandon takeaway, it could see roughly 20 firkins, up to 1,440 pints, chucked away at the end of this year's festival at St Edmundsbury Cathedral from August 23rd to 28th. It's a staggering amount. I really don't want to have to do that, he said. Let's hope we have a bumper year and sell it all. However, Martin said he believed he could pay the high duty on casks, roughly £2 more per cask, to carry on selling takeaway draft beer. The new duty rules will also have an impact on pubs, which offer takeaway draft, as they would either have to pay a higher rate on all their casks, or have separate casks with duty paid at the higher rate just for takeaway. Roger Waters, landlord of the Dove in Hospital Road, said takeaway sales were an important aspect of his business. The Dove has several draft beers, and Roger faces the prospect of paying higher duty on them all if he continues takeaway as at present, reducing the selection of beers available for takeaway or stopping takeaway draft sales altogether. Camera is campaigning to find a workable solution. After dedicating 51 years to 10-pin bowling, over 30 of those to a Bury St Edmunds League, 82-year-old Anne Priscott has decided to hang up her bowling shoes. Anne from Munford joined Ian Pattles Ladies Bowling League in September 1991 at Berry Bowl. Throughout her time playing, she collected newspaper clippings of how the league did and has handed these over to the team for its safekeeping. A recent shoulder injury has meant Anne has been forced to retire from bowling. She said, it's sad to be retiring. I'll miss talking to the other girls. It was good to be in the team and meet up every week, but when it happens like this, it happens and you have to make the best of it. I can still go and watch them when I can drive. Anne first began bowling around 1972, when she and her husband Peter, who was in the RAF, moved to Singapore. It's a skill game, but it's not like golf and football. It uses different skills, she added. Anne and Peter both fell in love with the sport and when they moved back to the UK they also joined a league in Norwich. She became a league bowler when Berry Bowl first opened. At the time all the teams in the women's league had plumbing related names. Anne had a few bowling partners over the years, her most recent being Sue, who began as a beginner a year ago. Called the Old Crocs, Sue renamed the team the Happy Mondays. To those thinking of joining, Anne said, We're all out to win. We're quite competitive, but it's fun at the same time. It's good exercise too. It keeps your arms going. Tracy Langley, who runs the league, said, Unfortunately, it's just an injury that has made her stop. It's really sad to be losing her because she's been a stalwart member of the club for all these years. She's a lovely lady, always positive, always happy, and even with this injury, she still keeps going. Tracy added that playing in the league was a great way to start the week. She said, everyone has fun and it keeps people moving, which is important. An iconic vehicle from a well-known British TV show has been spotted in Bury St Edmunds town centre. A replica of the yellow Reliant Regal, seen on Only Fools and Horses, was parked outside Bury Car Sales on St Andrews Street North. Proud owner Daniel Bird, who runs the car sales, bought the replica for several thousands in June and uses it as a marketing tool. It gets loads of attention, he said. 
there's 20 or 25 people every day that come over to have their photo taken or have a conversation about it. We're a bit only fools and horses obsessed in here. Daniel, 41 of Berry, has loved the show for a long time and has more memorabilia and signed pieces at home. He hopes to get David Jason, who plays Del Boy, to sign the car. On why he loves the show, he said, you never get bored of watching the same episodes. A Berry and Bloom multi-award winning gardener has said he is heartbroken and will not be able to compete this year due to a nearby tree causing havoc. John Fraer, aged 85, who has lived in Bevis Walk on the Nowton Estate since it was built around 50 years ago, has seen his front garden win many awards from the competition. But for the last 15 years, he says, he's been battling the tree only metres from his house as it drops bin loads of leaves and seedlings and he cannot fight it any more. He said, this tree has been an issue in past years, but I would get on my hands and knees, clear the rubbish up and just get on with it. But this year and last year it has been heartbreaking. The stuff now falls pretty much all the time for more than four months. I've filled my garden waste dustbin up three times already. John, who lives with his wife Iris, says it takes him two days and seven hours each day to clear, but within a week the space is covered again. He said, I've spoken to Havebury Housing, as I, just want to, as I just want the tree gone. They told me money was tight, but even, offered I, even after I offered to give them £500 to help with the cost to get the tree down, they refused. The tree was one of a few grown near to John's house when he first moved in. Two died and were taken away, with a third being dealt with as it was affecting the structure of one of his neighbour's homes. He said, I'm worried with the size of it. It could be doing that to someone else's house without them knowing. Also, the mess on the path outside my garden. What would happen if an elderly person slips? Who will be responsible for that? I pay my monthly rates, I pay to get my garden rubbish taken away, but what am I getting now? I need help. I have been left alone with this. Having won Berry and Bloom Awards since the initiative started, John is resigned to the fact that this will not be happening for him in 2023. He said, I cleared the garden in the first weekend of June, putting in some specialist geraniums, but two days later the stuff started dropping again, and honestly I could have cried. A spokesman for Havebury Housing said, We will carry out works on trees of ours that pose a health and safety risk. We have inspected this tree and confirm it poses no hazard. It is in good structural condition and physical health. We will continue to monitor this over the next 6 to 12 months. West Suffolk Council has announced that over £460,000 is being made available to charities and community groups via its Community Chest Fund. The latest round of funding for the scheme will focus on initiatives tackling the cost of living pressures facing residents, including social pressures. To apply for a Community Chest Grant, visit this a website which is very complicated, if you wish it, T-I-N-Y-U-R i dot com slash two p eight p m eighty eight or you could google community chest grant the council's cabinet member for families and communities councillor donna higgins said there are huge pressures on many of our residents right now and that's had a far-reaching impact on people's health and well-being the continuing cost of living crisis isn't just about the struggles of keeping a roof over people's head food on the table and heating in the winter, it can be very isolating. It can mean people are having to work multiple jobs or find polite ways to say no to the social activities that would normally keep them connected with family and friends. It's impacting on people's relationships and, with it, their health and well-being. Plans to rebuild the structurally unsound West Suffolk Hospital remain on track despite a report suggesting not all new hospitals pledged by the government will be completed within the promised time frame. 
West Suffolk Hospital NHS Foundation Trust said the Barry St Edmunds facility should be complete by 2030 as it remains a priority project within the National Hospital Scheme. However, a recent report by the National Audit Office suggested not all of the planned hospitals promised by the government will be delivered within the time frame, with only 32 of 40 likely to be finished. The report said that West Suffolk Hospital was one of seven that are structurally unsound due to defective concrete having been built using reinforced autoclaved aerated concrete which reportedly has a lifespan of about 30 years. Craig Black from West Suffolk NHS Foundation Trust said, Plans for a new healthcare facility continue to progress. We are currently preparing the outline business case and we are on target to complete this project before the end of the decade. Judges who visited Bury St Edmunds this week to scrutinise its blooming delights were impressed with what they saw. Anglia in Bloom judges descended on the town ahead of delivering their official verdict in September. However, Berry and Bloom coordinator Chris Wiley said the visit could not have gone better and that while the judges were not yet able to give full feedback, one had announced the town had done very well. A great day was had by all. We had two judges who were just amazed by what they saw, said Chris. Their tour took in Abbeygate Street, St John Street, Britannia House, which last year underwent a project to transform its outdoor space, Parkway, the new Coronation Crown and Sybil Andrews Academy, where the judges were impressed by the opportunities provided for students to grow and learn about horticulture. The Abbey Gardens tour was led by its head gardener and manager, The National Pensioners' Convention, along with 47 other concerned organisations like Age UK, Independent Age and Centre for Ageing Better, calls on the UK Government to establish a commissioner for older people and and ageing in England to act as an independent champion for older people and ensure that policy and practice across government considers the long-term needs of people in later life and the implications of our ageing population on society. Our society is ageing and policymakers should embrace this demographic demographic shift. Currently 11 million people are aged 65 or over and in less than 20 years over 17 million, one in four of us, will be over 65. Growing older is a privilege but an ageing population will require collaboration and joined-up thinking to deliver innovative policy solutions and meet the needs of the future, including alternatives to accessing information and services others than online, other than online. The support people need in later life from institutions like the NHS and social care and social security systems are critical but no single government department can respond to these issues alone. A commissioner would facilitate the long-term planning that is needed to ensure our economy and public services are adapting to demographic shifts, while also enabling more people to age well. This would not just benefit older people, but our country as a whole. A sharper focus on the range of experiences in later life is required. Not everyone enjoys a financially secure retirement. Indeed, an alarming proportion are struggling to make ends meet and, too often, older people's rights and interests are forgotten by decision makers, particularly as we face unprecedented crises. But there is an opportunity to fix this. Older people want to be part of the country's vision now and in the future. As our older population becomes increasingly diverse, we believe that older people urgently need a champion at the heart of the government, working alongside the Older People's Commissioners for Wales and Northern Ireland to help make the UK the best place in the world to grow old and this article was written by Christopher Brooks and he's chair of Suffolk and Anglia region pensioners 
The new leader of West Suffolk Council has warned that as the next steps for a community hub progress, it is more important than ever to be prudent with public money, given the national economic crisis. Councillor Cliff Waterman said as a review takes place this summer into the Western Way hub, residents expect the authority to ensure it is spending their money in the right way. In March, under the previous administration, the Cabinet voted unanimously to progress to the second stage of tendering, which referred only to the initial phase of the Berries and Edmonds scheme. No contract can be signed until the second review takes place. Councillor Waterman said, Given the current economic crisis gripping the country and squeezing public services budgets, it's more important than ever to be prudent with public money. A farmer who would help anybody and was known for organising a charity ploughing match has died age 86. Henry Castle of Colford, who died on July the 1st, was a farmer all his life and was passionate about vintage tractors. His coffin, painted with tractors and ploughed fields, will be brought to St Mary's Church in Colford on his own Ferguson tractor trailer, followed by his other four vintage tractors. Isabel, his wife of 46 years, said, Henry was a very helpful man and loved anything to do with the outside. He would help anybody. He used to pull out trees for neighbours and friends, and he was the only one who could catch moles. It isn't easy, but he could catch them. He was passionate, passionate about his vintage tractors. He would take them to shows, and if he was lucky, he would get first prize. He would help anybody who phoned up about vintage tractors. Henry has just enjoyed growing things and ploughing the land. As long as he was outside, Henry was happy. During his working life, he managed trial farming plots for ICI in Essex, Suffolk and Norfolk from 1963 until he retired aged 51. Some of the trials were secret, but they included different varieties of cereal, sugar beet and rapeseed. Isabel said Henry would see how they performed on the land to see if they, if they would go forward for production. They moved to Culford 38 years ago, having previously lived in Essex. For about 15 to 18 years, he ran an annual plan match with Don Sapsford near Ingham. The event raised money for St Nicholas Hospice Care. Isabel said it's being held this September. Henry was finalising with Don from his dying bed. He couldn't go before he organised the ploughing match. He owned three massy Ferguson vintage tractors and two grey Fergies. His funeral was held yesterday at 3pm. Henry is survived by Jane, Claire and Kenneth. Suffolk County Council has delivered a stinging rebuke to the Sunica Solar Farm project, describing it as the worst infrastructure scheme it has ever dealt with in a letter to Michael Gove. The letter dated July the 14th critiques Sonica on a number of points, including a perceived lack of engagement by the developer with impacted communities. Under the existing plans, Sonica Energy Farm would straddle a 2,000-acre site along the border between Suffolk and Cambridge. In a recent letter to the Secretary of State for Leveling Up, Housing and Communities, the Council condemned the planning process. The letter signed by Suffolk County Council's Deputy Leader Richard Rout, states, Community outrage was stoked by a perception on the part of the community of a biased assessment of agricultural land quality by the applicant, coupled with a perception of reluctance on the part of the examination or relevant expert parties to deal with the matter robustly. Right, I have three pieces of short news <coughs> which I will read consecutively. So it's news in brief just now. When reptile enthusiast John and Christine Champion found a shivering royal python abandoned in a cardboard box on their doorstop, they decided to give it a home, only to discover its companion had slithered off into the neighbourhood in 1998. The couple found the two-and-a-half-foot snake outside their house in Uffkell Road, Thetford, but it was only later that they found a note attached to the box. The note read, Please give Monty and Connie a good home. Leaving home breaks my heart to lose them. 
Mr. and Mrs. Champion had no way of knowing whether they had found Monty or Connie. Either way, one of them was still at large. And then a business owner who launched a pop-up cafe and lunch club for older residents in Rattleston is looking to reach more people. Jen Lord of Drinkstone, who runs her own business, Jen Bakes and Creates, began the pop-up cafe in January and the lunch club two years ago. She said, I want a cafe of my own one day, but with kids at the minute it's a bit impossible. There's always been a pop-up one in my village for the elderly, so I thought I'd go to the next village, and it's gone great. She hopes to start an evening club for those who work during the day. A pop-up cafe during the day. The pop-up cafe runs every Tuesday, and the lunch club is on the last Thursday of the month at Rattleston Community Pavilion, both from 12 to 2pm. And then the last short bit is... The Bury St Edmunds branch of Superdry in the Ark Shopping Centre is to close. A spokesman said we can confirm that Superdry store in Bury St Edmunds, which is operated by our franchisee under licence from Superdry, is in the process of closing. Meanwhile, Alan Hassel, centre manager, said a replacement should be announced shortly for Colucci's restaurant. And now we come to the ever popular reader's letters. Uh, the first letter that I'm going to read is from Anna Tyler, who is the Chair of Trustees of the Royal National Institute of Blind People. Headed, NHS Letting Down Blind People. 75 years ago, the National Health Service was founded, and while I have been using the NHS for around six decades, I've learnt that rarely is my sight impairment accounted for in the way that I am communicated with. What's the point of sending me a letter I can't read? It's nearly 30 years since the Disability Discrimination Act made it illegal to discriminate against someone because they are disabled. It's been 13 years since the Equality Act compelled public organisations to treat everyone equally, and it's been seven years since the Accessible Information Standard set out what publicly funded health and social care providers must do to ensure people who are blind or partially sighted can read medication labels, appointment letters, care information and give informed consent to surgical procedures. Despite all of this, a stage 3 cancer diagnosis did not cause the wheels of the NHS to ensure I could access my information. Indeed, the system set its face against me and I had to insist on getting information in a format I could read in order to keep myself safe. Often, my requests were ignored. Imagine the challenge of that in the middle of cancer treatment. RNIB knows, from talking to blind and partially sighted people over decades, that not being able to access health information is a huge issue for people with sight loss. I, for one, have reached my breaking point. The updated Accessible Information Standard is being published this autumn. The standard sets out the rules that apply to all health and social care providers to ensure people like me can access health information in a range of preferred formats, from large print to braille or even audio. After nearly 30 years of various legislation designed to ensure we can access health services and enjoy our best lives, it's now incumbent upon the NHS to meet its legal responsibilities. It has to do better if blind and partially sighted people are to access health services and be safe, as is our right. RNIB will continue to work in partnership with our health service colleagues, but we have to call out what isn't working. Despite being beyond frustrated by this, blind and partially sighted people can play a role too. Although the problem shouldn't sit with us to fix, there are steps you can take to demand better care. Communicate your preferred format to your healthcare team. Be aware of your rights. Don't be afraid to make a complaint or raise a concern with your provider. There's a full guide to the process of how to request information in a format you can read at www.rnib.org.uk. Now is the time to have your voice heard. If you live with sight loss and are willing to share your experiences, good or bad, with accessible health information, 
please do so by visiting www.rnib.org.uk. Together, we can make this right. Right. My first letter is written by Graham Day of Stowmarket, Mm -hmm. and he says the price of alien conversion. Having reached the age of having to renew my driving licence, I nevertheless had some concerns as to how long it would take. I was delighted when I heard the thud of an envelope on the hall carpet, meaning that my licence had arrived in just over two weeks. Tore open the envelope expectantly. Then came a crushing disappointment. I looked at the photograph. Surely this wasn't me. Oh yes, it was. I'd gone to a photo booth in a large supermarket and had been photographed with the required facial grimace against a white background. Unfortunately now, my dark shoulder-length hair, high man, hair of a younger years, has been replaced with short, snow-white stubble hair on top. The result is I look bald with pointed ears, bulging eyes and wizened face, or like an alien, or even Dr. Spock. The cost of the photos was four times the £2.50 pre-pandemic. £10 to be transferred into an alien. At least, if I am stopped by the police, I should give my name as Dr. Spock. Uh, My next letter is from Heather Carpenter of Felix Dole, headed, Climate Change is a Catastrophe. And this is what Heather says. I find myself speechless after reading Paul Greater's opinion article of Thursday, July the 20th. Could East Anglian tourism actually benefit from climate change, he said. It seems to me these views are insensitive and naive. Elsewhere in our world, people drown, expire, lose their livelihoods, livestock, homes, food and water as a result of climate change. Meanwhile, this opinion piece seems to blithely contemplate the business opportunities for a region that is itself falling into the sea in places. This attitude smacks of capitalising on the misery of others, and in doing so, normalising and minimising the effects of this growing environmental disaster that we ignore at our peril. Climate change is not a business opportunity. It is a growing catastrophe for all humanity, ourselves here in East Anglia included. Um, My next letter is written by Don Black and he comes from Dis. And he says, Historic Royal Palaces, which manages the Tower of London, has added to an old controversy. Did Richard III order the murder of his nephews, Edward XII and Richard IX, to secure his succession to the throne? It recently put up an information notice suggesting a lack of evidence that this, that this ever happened to the princes in the tower. Shakespeare, on the other hand, alleged that the royal hunchback gave the order and appointed Sir James Tyrrell of Gipping, near Stowmarket, to supervise the crime. Both the Richard III Society and the Tyrrell Family History Society have long strived to clear the manor the names of the two men, and are happy with the doubt now expressed at the Tower. Some historians who have studied the evidence argue the opposite. Sir James is said to have built the beautiful chapel at Gipping in contrition, and that remains one of the glories of Suffolk. Now I have another letter, and that's written by John Baines, and it's sent by email. And he says, leaks are the biggest waste of water. When I fully agree with Stuart Letton regarding the waste of our valuable water resources, that was letters of the 14th of July, the major waste of water by far in this area is the total incompetence of Anglia Water to repair any leaks until they are at least six weeks old. I am sure many residents wonder why they should bother if our provider has no apparent interest to preserve this resource. Perhaps they spend all their money on TV adverts, so none is left to carry out actual repairs. I have another letter, and that's about the co-op store, um, which is vital resource to um, residents, and that's written by David Austin of Bury St Edmunds. Like many residents of North Bury St Edmunds, I was very upset to hear about the closure of the co-op supermarket. This is a vital resource for many people in this part of Bury, 
which has always seemed to be the Cinderella side of town. My parents moved to the Howard estate in the 1970s, and there's never been a doctor's surgery or a dentist, and while the shops in Lake Avenue and St Olaf's Precinct do a good, good job, the co-op was a service many people, some now quite old, could access easily. It would be great if another supermarket could open on the co-op site, but that seems unlikely, so I assume it'll end up as more housing, which will add to all the extra pressure on resources, traffic, etc. we've seen over the years as estates grow like mushrooms around Berry. And I'm not surprised that nothing has appeared at Marham Park. I remember going to the residence meetings with the developers, which the developers held, when the development was first proposed, and there were going to be shops, a community centre, doctor, etc. But has any of that come to pass? So, I'm not surprised that the co-op hasn't opened there either. Many people accept that we need new house building, but if we have new houses, we have to have the facilities built to support the new occupants and not just overload those contained with relatively small historic towns. Now, my last letter is written by Janet Douglas of Framlingham, and she says research is very costly. Does Audrey Naylor have any idea as to the time and cost of medical research? That was letters of July the 20th. I suppose IA will help this situation. My thoughts are that a donation by people could help enormously in paying for the research we so badly need. Yes, there are companies who help with these costs, but, but I re repeat again, does she have any idea if the cost of the costs involved? How lucky that her problems were helped by a company helping in her case. Not every obscure illness has that help. It is always needed that there is some way of protecting those needed protection. I am sure she is aware of some people who are forever popping to the surgery and taking appointments needed by someone more needy. Okay, now it's not often we go further afield than the local papers, but this next item is an edited review by Jay Rayner. It's taken from The Observer, the national newspaper, of July the 16th, 2023. And this is what Jay Rayner says in his review. At Lark... A tiny restaurant in Bury St Edmunds, the special is properly special. The description scribbled upon the blackboard is suggestive enough. It reads, rabbit shank and black pudding pie, girolles, cream Madeira sauce. Put aside piffling questions over whether rabbits have shanks, or whether if they do, there's enough meat between a rabbit's knee and ankle to go in a pie. Questions of leperine anatomy are not relevant here. For that pie is on its way. Prepare to swoon. Prepare, perhaps, to unlace your corset. Sitting on a mound of pea puree amid a pond of glossy, herb-flecked, girol-studded varnish mahogany sauce is a golden pastry-encased thigh-shaped pie. There's a fine pastry lattice over the case. It has been egg-glazed again and again until you can almost see your face in it. A bone sticks out one end. When you cut in, you realise it's a brilliant piece of set dressing, for that bone does not connect to anything. It's just been inserted to remind you of the whole shank thing. It's a love child of a Wellington and a Scotch egg. I'm eating with the food historian Dr Annie Gray, who sighs theatrically and says, the 19th century would be very happy with that. It is a masterclass in classical cooking, which must have taken a few days to execute, and it is, of course... Delicious. The rabbit pie is the work of the fabulously named Freddie Futter, working with head chef James Kahn. Both came from nearby Pea Porridge, the long-standing Michelin-starred restaurant in Berris and Edmunds. The rest of the magnificent brigade is called Ewan. He's not long graduated from Catering College. That's it. Just the three of them. Afterwards, when I was in the kitchen, fanboying over the rabbit shank pie as if they were all the Harry Styles of food, I asked whether there had been any pushback from their previous employer over the months-old opening. Absolutely not, they told me. They'd been encouraged to do it. It's heartening and proof, if it were needed, 
that quality begets quality, that when the tide rises, it lifts all the boats. Lark is housed in a solid building on the edge of the town square. It was once a bus shelter, then a police station, and finally a florist's. The space, which seats just twenty, was therefore often frequented by fumbling couples, then by drunks behaving badly, and finally by beautiful fragrant things. Now it's a restaurant. All three of those can happen here again. The floor is polished concrete. The white walls are hung with tidy, if mildly glowering abstracts. The menu is a list of smallish plates, rising in price with their heft. In the way of most former bus stops, this is not a glamorous space. It has been bludgeoned into being a comfortable room. Instead, all the glamour is on the plate. There is a strong sense of young cooks pushing at the very edge of what they can achieve in a tiny kitchen, of them making a first, standalone statement. As we work our way through our plates, a chap in a sun hat and shorts comes in alone, gets a table for one, and orders the half lobster with lobster butter and sea herbs. It's clear he's been before. It's clear he's happy. To complete the deal, they have a list of proper desserts, which includes an apple tart tatan. The wine list is compact and priced for that second bottle. The service by just two people is swift and assured. There are lots of words you could use to describe Lark in Barry St Edmunds. It's ambitious, clever, relaxed and hugely enjoyable. But I'll go for just one word, used correctly, like that rabbit shank pie. It's special. Now I have an article written by our local historian, author and tour guide, and his name is Martin Taylor. And his article says, Rail Staff on a Mission. The Railway Mission was a charity founded in 1881 to bring the gospel to people working on the railways. Nowadays it's a Christian chaplaincy. Thousands of people were employed at one time on the railways and working on a Sunday precluded some of them from attending a church service. So, in 1895, local railwaymen approached Mrs Arthur Ridley a widow of Hexham House, Northgate Street, about starting a railway mission in Bury St Edmunds. Mrs Ridley attended the Congregational Chapel in Northgate Street on the corner of Looms Lane and agreed to run the services for the workers in a room at the station master's house at the Northgate Railway Station from 1895. However, it soon became clear that a new place of worship was required and consequently a fund was opened for this. Obviously, any facility had to be close to the station. A site was chosen in what was then Northgate Road, and by 1900 sufficient monies had been accrued to proceed with the building of the Mission Hall. A decision was made to dispense with a brick building to save time and money and a prefabricated corrugated iron structure with two light windows in a gothic design and a small triangular dormers in both roof slopes were, was purchased in 1900 from Norwich firm Bolton & Paul, one of several companies nationwide, then offering this type of what is known today as, a tin, as tin tabernacles. W. Hartrow, a contractor from London, was employed for the build and the total cost, including fitting out, was just over £317, a bargain. Sunday services soon, com soon commenced and a range of activities involving various groups were soon underway. Due to its popularity, these service for services were extended, as was the building, during 1903 with Mrs Ridley very much at the helm until she retired in 1916. Always welcome, welcoming during World War II, even German POWs encamped at Fornham sang at the Mission Hall as a choir. In 1990 the Mission Hall was renamed Fornham Road Free Church and at this time still retained its original open benches and raised pulpit. In 2001, it was purchased for £35,000 by the Seventh-day Adventist and refurbished, 
the work completed by May 2005, the Bury Society giving a substantial grant. With a new coat of green paint on the exterior, but no longer with its original turret, this former mission hall is now Grade 2 listed. Now it's a rare event for us to introduce any degree of sports reporting, but don't get too anxious. Uh, This is about individual sportsmen rather than just report on a match. Berrytown manager Cole Skuse has made former Brantham Athletic and Needham market striker Jose Santa de la Paz his 10th summer signing. The Free Press revealed last week the Needham Market Academy graduate was the pacey number nine in Berry's opening pre-season match at home to Ipswich Town under-21s. Skuse originally said he was due to have another look at the front man in action at Lower League Thetford last Friday. But Santa de la Paz went into that fixture, which ended in a 1-0 defeat to Matt Morton's lower league side, as a permanent fixture in his squad for 2023-24, following an announcement earlier the same day. The Blues boss suggested the player, who adds to Luke Brown from Stormarket Town as boosting his forward options alongside Kemal Ramadan, may have been considering other offers. It comes after experienced strikers Ollie Hughes of Mildenhall Town and Darren Mills of Holland FC have both departed in the close season. A club statement reads, Berrytown have completed the signing of striker Jose Santa de la Paz after a successful trial over pre-season and an excellent performance in our first friendly last weekend. Jose was with Brantham Athletic in the Thurlow Non-League Premier Division last season and scored 14 goals in 35 appearances after previously being part of the Needham Market Academy. He has been training with the first team since they started back in early June, and played 45 minutes of a first pre-season friendly against at Ipswich Town 11 last weekend. Skews told club's website, Jose has been training with us this summer, and he has a brilliant attitude, and is just the type of person we want to have at the club. He trains really well and is fully committed and he has impressed myself and Paul Musgrove, the assistant manager, over the short period we've had with him. He's exceptionally quick and will give us an extra dimension up front. He scored 14 goals last season in the league below so we are hoping he can bring those qualities to us this season. He's willing to learn and take advice on board and we are very pleased he's decided to sign for the new season, as he would undoubtedly have had other offers. Tuesday saw Skews register his first win of pre-season at the third attempt, 2-0 at Lower League Long Melford, via early second-half goals from Brown and Ramadan. Two tests against higher league sides now follow, with a trip to Leyston, followed by a visit from Kings Lynn Town. We are now coming to the end of this edition of St Edmundsbury News Talk. If you have any comments about the memory stick or difficulty playing it, please use the phone number on the pink sheet which you have been given. Alternatively, you can put a note in the pouch when you return the memory stick to us. We would like to acknowledge our appreciation to the Berry Free Press, East Anglian Daily Times, Haverhill Echo and the Newmarket Journal from whose pages most of our items have been taken. News Talk will be back again next week. So until then, from Paul, Harvey and Chris, it's goodbye. Goodbye. listening to a podcast brought to you by the St Edmundsbury News Talk Association. You can view more information about News Talk on our website at www.stedmundsburynewstalk.org.uk. The music in this podcast was provided under Creative Commons license by Scott Holmes. This podcast was created entirely by volunteers in our Bury St Edmunds studio.